Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, this is Roy Green, and welcome to the podcast of the today's show, Saturday, June the 9th. Doug Ford swept a victory in Ontario, but the question is how deep is his support and how patient will voters be as far as seeing promises kept as concerned? I spoke with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos. Two celebrity suicides this week. Suicide is statistically on the increase, and we're always surprised when people who seem to have it all take their own lives. Here's Dr. Frank Farley talking to me about suicides of the famous and not necessarily famous. He's a psychologist and past president of the American Psychological Association. The G7 and the controversies, tariffs, Donald Trump firing Twitter shots at Trudeau, Macron, etc., and they fire back. I spoke with Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports and the former editor of the Washington Times about Mr. Trump and the G7. Pat Cadell is an American pollster and political film consultant who served as chief pollster and senior advisor for the Democratic Party presidential candidates George McGovern and Jimmy Carter. He was also Jimmy Carter's senior advisor. Here's what Pat Cadell had to say about some of the major issues we're talking about around the world at this time. And Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson taking on issues in a non-politically correct sense. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We knew it was going to happen, that the conservatives were going to win. The progressive conservative party of Ontario was going to win the election. Um, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos, told us as much uh, last Saturday and so here we are, Daryl. Thank you again for making time. Here we are with the, with Premier Elect Doug Ford. Um, was there anything at all surprising to you about about the victory? Perhaps the, the scope of victory. Did anything take you by surprise Thursday night? Well, the overall result didn't take me by surprise, but uh, I think everybody was a little bit surprised by the fact that the turnout was up, and that the turnout wasn't millennials. Because normally when we see an increase in terms of turnout, it's younger voters getting uh, getting behind a particular choice, like we saw with uh, Justin Trudeau. But this time around, it was their moms and dads that showed up and, and, and elected Doug Ford. So the size of his victory, I think, was uh, generous. He kind of petered out and weren't able to bring those younger voters to the polls uh, to the degree that it looked like they might be able to was a bit of a surprise. But in terms of the overall result, I mean, we talked about it the last time we were together uh, 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 <laughs> it, it was just not good for, for the NDP let's just leave it that way well I I was wondering what it was Andrea Horvath was cheering about because uh, sure they're the official opposition and I've never quite understood what official opposition really means all it means is you're lost um, but she was cheering the, the 40 seats that they had maybe that is something to cheer about Maybe she was also trying to make sure that nobody steps up immediately and tries to take her job away from her. But is there was there a message in the Ford victory to the next two uh, elections, and those are the ones in Alberta and federally next October when Justin Trudeau will be up against Andrew Scheer and Mr. Singh? Well, I think that what we're seeing is a general rise of the, uh, if you want to call it the right, Roy, on, uh, in Canadian politics, the pendulum tends to swing one way and then swings back the other. I don't think that there's anybody who'd be seriously right now saying with any probability where they'd have to put money on the table that Rachel Notley has a very strong chance in Alberta. But where we're really going to be seeing this play itself out will be in the next, next federal election. And the question is whether or not the Trudeau uh, administration, and particularly his political advisors, but Justin Trudeau himself, uh, really took anything out of Ontario as any sort of signal. Uh, the danger for them in looking at Ontario the way that 
political advisors might look at it is that, oh, it was just a clapped-out government that just got pushed out because people got tired of them. No, it was more than that. And the question is whether or not they, they understand that that was actually happening. I'm, something more was happening. I'm not optimistic that they actually do get it. Well, they'd better, and I think it's particularly noteworthy that you pointed out that it's not the millennials who voted, that it's their mothers and fathers. So if they're committed to voting in Ontario, I sense that certainly the ones in the province of Ontario, which has the largest voting population as far as single provinces are concerned, I have a sense they'll be very much engaged next fall. Well, yeah, when you look at the dynamics now, Roy, of, of how politics works, it's, it's, there's a right and there's a left. I mean, the old politics was one in which everybody tried to occupy the center. Right. And maybe a little bit more left or a little bit more right. Well, that's gone. And essentially what we have now is on the left, the NDP now pushing the Liberals to be more left. In the previous election, it was the Liberals pushing the NDP to move more left. And the Conservatives moving a bit more to the right. Uh, and uh, that center place being evacuated. The problem that the, the, the folks on the, on the progressive side of the agenda have is that they have two choices. On the conservative side, they only have one. And that one choice can kind of moderate or get a little more uh, strong on the right. But on the left, what the only direction it can really go is more left. So it's going to be very interesting when we get into this campaign, not so much the competition between progressives and conservatives, but the competition among progressives as who can be the standard bearer for, for uh, that particular side of the political agenda. In Ontario, it was Andrea Horvath. In the last federal election, it was Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to uh, Doug Ford. How deep is the Ford support, and how long will voters wait for his promises to be kept before they begin to grouse? Well, I think that the, the change part of the agenda is going to go on for a while here. I think people are going to revel a little bit in the not just the... Uh, maybe potential policy changes that you're going to see, but probably in terms of the tonal changes, you know, a little less finger-wagging and sanctimoniousness from Queen's Park, I think will probably be well-received by the people who, uh, who elected Doug Ford. But at the end of the day, what they're going to expect him to do is make their lives more affordable. And in four years, if he can't do that, then he will be held to account. Yeah. And I would imagine what he does between now and next fall may very well have an impact on the federal election. Oh, absolutely. Again, you know, I think the the federal liberals are probably looking at the possibility of of running against Doug Ford and and licking their chops. And there's probably a bit of a concern among the the conservative party about what Doug Ford might mean for them. Uh, But everybody's counting on him not being, you know, well received by Ontarians and us kind of descending into some, the same kind of stuff that we, we see south of the border right now. But if that doesn't happen, then it's kind of tough for the Liberals to run against Doug Ford. And in fact, what it does is probably elevates the conservative brand for Andrew Scheer. What's interesting, Roy, these days is that uh, the uh, Ontario politics is kind of taking an outsized role in terms of defining the political choices at the national level on both the progressive side and the conservative side. So, for example, you see in uh, uh, the federal political numbers right now that the Liberals have come down to where the conservatives have, and the conservatives have come up. That's not generally what a lot about what's happening at the federal level. It's the brands being affected in Ontario. So this, what's happened, just happened in Ontario, is going to play, I would say, a pretty big role in the next federal election campaign. You know, uh, Daryl, I would not bet against Doug Ford. I've had the opportunity to speak with him uh, off the air and on the air, not during the campaign on the air, which was surprising. But anyway, they chose to do it their way. And they were successful, so I suppose they're, they can point at that. But I would not bet against Doug Ford. Uh, he's a he's a smart guy. He understands. He understands. He can read the streets, if that makes sense. Well, you know, I think we get a little obsessed in politics about the conversation that takes place between the media and politicians, and we forget that the media is really a conduit to the public. And when somebody can have a more direct conversation with the public and resonates with them. They don't necessarily have to do that well with the media. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we go back and we take a look at the debates and we say, well, you know, Doug Ford was not a great debater. No guff. He was, he was not good in the debates. He was, certainly wasn't as good as Andrew Horvath and especially not as good as, as, as Kath, uh, Kathleen Wynne. But the truth is, it doesn't matter. He was good in his conversation with that coalition of conservative voters right. that he needed to win. So I'm sure that the 
various media outlets, particularly the ones that are more on the left, are going to have a field day making fun of Doug Ford. The problem is what they're also doing is making fun of the people who voted for him, and that will be their big mistake, and actually, to a certain extent, Doug Ford's salvation. Daryl, always great speaking with you. Thank you for all the time you've given us leading up to the campaign, and then again today. Thank you so much. Uh, Roy, you're very kind. I really appreciate being on your show. Thank you very much. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, great polling firm internationally. The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. Dr. Frank Farley, let's talk about something that's been difficult to absorb, and uh, that's why I was trying to get into this a little more in in a light vein, but the topic is anything but light. Two celebrity suicides this week. And suicide is statistically on the increase. We always seem surprised uh, when people who appear to have it all take their own lives, Frank. This week it was Kate Spade, fashion accessories designer, and chef and author and broadcaster Anthony Bourdain. My question out of the gate here is this. Does anyone go through an entire lifetime without ever experiencing suicidal thoughts of one kind or another? Probably not. Uh, You know, our conception of death is very profound. It influences people in all sorts of ways. Uh, We call it death anxiety (laughs) in psychology. But, you know, some of us think that it underlies many other forms of, of problems. That is, fear of dying, death anxiety, what's going to happen, what's it going to be like, um, and how it relates to the problems that we have in our current life. Would it be better on the other side, for example? And uh, so our conceptions of, of death are profound. I think, they, I think everybody probably has some thoughts. Uh, of suicide at some point in their life. So if you were to have a thought that goes like this, I'd be better off dead, do you ignore that thought? Do you just skate past it, or do you get help? Well, get help. Um, You know, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists deal very frequently with uh, people having suicidal thoughts. And there's all sorts of approaches to taking care of it so that you go on to have a, a wonderful life. So if anybody's having significant thoughts about suicide, they should get themselves to a psychologist or a psychiatrist because we can help you in very uh, significant ways. And in all of the communities, all the provinces where we're broadcasting, uh, there are suicide hotlines. There are organizations there waiting 24-7 to provide you support. Now. Kate Spade in her mid-50s, Anthony Bourdain was 61, both of them very wealthy, both of them very famous, and we would think, the average person might think, and count me among that group, where wealth and fame would be some kind of firewall against suicidal feelings. Apparently not. Apparently not in these cases, and of course I don't know, you know, exactly why these happened. I haven't even heard if there was a suicide note. Maybe you know of that. I don't, Frank. Uh, I don't. Yeah. And so it's very hard, uh, shy of reading a suicide note, to know exactly what was going on. But, you know, from the outside, I can look at these people, and particularly Anthony Bourdain, because I know much more about him. He was, uh, I think, really more in the public eye. Um, He had one heck of a life. Apparently he was on the road 250 to 275 days a year, you know, living in hotels, hotel rooms, living on the edge. Um, he had earlier history of, uh, of addictions, significant battles with addictions earlier, a uh, couple of marriages. Um, he had some degree of shared custody with the, the 11-year-old daughter, but... How do you handle shared custody when you're on the road 275 mm-hmm. days a year? So my own feeling would be that it, it sounds sort of like a perfect storm of, you know, incredible levels of stimulation, 
and changing behaviors, nothing secure, nothing solid, uh, different hotel room every few days, uh, dealing with different people all the time, eating all these <laughs> different foods from different countries. Um, when I've seen the show, there was a lot of drinking going on, and uh, that doesn't help you. Um, and so uh, he had an extremely unusual life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, about the only term that I could come up with is sort of a perfect storm. Um, He seems to have had a kind of risk-taking personality, which is a personality type that I have studied for many years. Uh, And these are people who live on the edge. They're they're always pushing the envelope. And sometimes it can go bad. Yeah, so they... And I worry if uh, that might have been what happened here. Not necessarily having a foundation to fall back on. Uh, is there yes. such a thing as suicide contagion? I ke- I've heard this term several times this week, and there's, of course, statistical evidence which shows there's been an increase in suicides um, globally. But does suicide contagion exist? It's possible. Uh, there's a whole new interest in the, in the behavioral sciences and the cognitive sciences in the whole concept of contagion emotional contagion, uh, imitation. Another term we sometimes use is parasocial life. That is, people who live their lives through media figures, you know, through people Mm -hmm. on television and in television shows. So if a famous figure takes their own life, is it possible that somebody who sort of lives their life through media figures might do it? in imitation. Mm -hmm. So um, we don't have a lot of hard science on this. There is some new research, interestingly, on violence contagion, suggesting that it can be contagious. Uh, Suicide is a sort of violence against the self. Uh, So I think you're raising a really important point. The Centers for Disease Control here in the States has been arguing that this increase in suicide, which is undoubtedly happening, at least in the States, Uh, They have argued that one of the factors is the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, They have their theory as to why we're seeing this increase. Uh, They also argue that the uh, fallout from the 2008 economic recession, which dislocated a lot of lives, uh, is still with us. Right, Frank. I'm and, go- uh, that can be leading to hopelessness and depression. Yeah, I have to stop. Which are key factors in uh, suicide? I have to stop, Doctor Farley, because the clock, as usual. But I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Been a difficult week. Lots of fans um, for for both of these uh, people, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And thanks for taking the time, Frank. You're you're welcome. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. With us is Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, a great polling firm in the United States. And Fran, of course, is also the former editor of the Washington Times. Fran, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to with you because you've uh, witnessed uh, the previous G7 conferences. Have you ever seen anything like this in any way, shape, or form, and how do you interpret what's going on with all of the to's and fro's and the accusatory tweets and then the uh, the accusatory uh, verbal barrages and Trudeau telling Trump you're not as smart as I am? What's going on? Well, what's going to happen is the same thing that's happened in this country, is all these other world leaders are going to basically do what Trump says. Uh, because this is the first time, I mean, you're absolutely right, Roy, we haven't seen anything like this, but the United States is now represented by a businessman and not by a government bureaucrat, and that's, gonna, that's making an enormous difference in our trade negotiations. So the, the others, do the others just not understand, or the, do they not know how to, how to uh, react, or do they understand that, uh, that Trump is essentially telling them what, in fact, has been going on? Well, I think, I mean, I don't fault uh, Trudeau or any of the others. I mean, they're they're doing what they think is best for their country. I mean, he's representing Canada. Uh, Macron's there for France. I mean, yes, I mean, I think they're they're speaking in what they think is the, are the best interests of their country. But Trump looks at these trade deals and sees a, the, the big United States trade deficit with, with all these countries. Uh, and as he said in his quote, he said, basically, the United States has been a piggy bank for all these countries, and that's over. 
What's the response in the United States to what uh, your president has been saying? Well, I'd say the, United, the response is predictable, Roy. I mean, you follow this as closely as I do. The usual suspects who don't like Trump don't follow the details, don't care, and hate him on no matter what he does. And the people that support him are going right on, go man, go. Fran, is this coming down to the who's a populist uh, and who's a, a globalist? Populist is a word. I don't even like the term anymore because it, it's become almost a negative. It's become, become derogatory when it right. shouldn't be. Uh, and nationalist has become derogatory. It's become uh, almost an attack word. If you're, a, if you're a nationalist, then you must be a bigot. No, if you're a right. nationalist, you're a patriot. That's the way it should be looked at. But uh, is this now breaking down into you're either a globalist or you're a nationalist, and Trump is the nationalist and the rest of them are globalists? Right. Well, I think, I think you hit it right on the head. Trump, Trump's called the question with his America First policies. Uh, and as you know, of course, American first has been demonized by all the global elites. Uh, but it, Trump feels that the United States has been taken advantage of, and I think statistically you can probably make a pretty good case for that. And uh, you had Obama, who was bowing his head to every despot uh, and trying to lead from behind, a, a phrase which I always loved. And uh, Trump is just the opposite. I mean, Trump is uh, you know, the strongest American president we've seen in a long, long time. Does taking on the, we'll call them the G6 for a moment, does taking them on the way that Trump is taking them on, does it make sense for the United States, or is it going to potentially hurt the United States and your national economy if, as Macron has said, look, we can go on as the G6. I understand that the GDP of the United States is more than the other six combined, um, but is there not the potential that just shutting out these G6 and you know that's going to include the rest of the European Union. Is that not going to potentially hurt the United States economy? Well, if it if all that came to pass, yes, it potentially might hurt the U.S. economy. But that's not going to happen because you know as well as I do that these countries are all going to look out for themselves, and ultimately some are going to break ranks uh, because they want to do what's best for themselves. Uh, and Trump is is a very skilled negotiator and has some very skilled negotiators working for him coming out of the business business uh, community. Uh, and there's no way with it, the kind of money that we're talking about and the kind of trade we're talking about that uh, that deals are not going to be made with the United States of America. No, I mean, you can't. If you're another country and you're looking to make – if you're looking to have a, a, a viable economy, you have to include the United States in the picture. Otherwise, you're just going to be left behind. Right. Now, so the, so yeah. now you ask me how far can this go? Could this be bad for the United States? Yeah. I would say, you know, sure, it, that, that potential is there. But I think thus far, Trump has, uh, has done some pretty remarkable things with the U.S. economy in a very short period of time. And uh, I think his supporters have a lot of confidence in him. So, Fran, the issue, though, of upsetting people who are your friends and your allies and uh, Mr. Trudeau rather unwisely went to the U.S. and went on with Chuck Todd, who we all know is as anti-Trump as you can be in uh, American media, and started talking about how the United States and, and Canada have uh, fought together side by side. And that's all true. If Mr. Trump has this attitude toward uh, the other countries, and you might bristle at the, at the word attitude, but if he has that attitude, does that not run the risk of upsetting allied countries? If we can just take the trade out of it for a second, just upsetting people who were generationally friends of the United States. Again, yes, I suppose that's true, but I think I think we all recognize that there's a, for lack of a better phrase, a new world order going on, and uh, a lot of these so-called allies, and many Americans feel that a lot of these so-called allies have taken advantage of us. Uh, Look at the situation in NATO, where the, uh, the, the a lot of the countries don't even pony up uh, their their share of their for their own defense. That's right. Uh, why should the U.S. taxpayer be on the hook for the defense of Europe? Uh, so I think a lot of Americans look to that, and uh, and again, the bottom line, Roy, always is the economy. As long as our economy is getting stronger and unemployment's going down and wages are going up and things like that, people aren't going to worry too much about uh, what Canada or the EU thinks of the United States. And that's happening in the United States right now, isn't yes, it? definitely. Um, what are Donald Trump's approval numbers like? He's still hovering around the, you know, the high 40s, 
around 50. Uh, he, he's pretty much been there since uh, his State of the Union speech at the end of January, which got uh, good marks from most folks for being conciliatory and reaching out to the other side. Uh, he was, like all presidents, he started in, say, the low 50s when he first took office. Then he dropped down into the low 40s. Uh, and he's gone up, say, four or five points since the State of the Union and pretty much stayed in the high 40s, right around 50, which is a point or two, two, three points better, say, than Obama was at at this same time in his presidency. I found that very interesting. I saw that the other day in one of your uh, one of your emails uh, from, from uh, Rasmussen Reports that Donald Trump's approval numbers are higher than those of Barack Obama at an equal point in time. Well, again, let's be honest here. I mean, the use of the word higher, I mean, they are up. They are higher maybe two to three points on most days. But then again, you're talking about a survey that's got a plus or minus uh, three margin of error, too. So, uh, yeah, he's doing a little better than Obama, but it's not dramatically better than Obama. Okay. Now, as far as the meeting with the North Korean leader is concerned, what do you think is going to happen? Let me ask you to put your newsman's hat on. What do you expect is going to come out of that? What's the best-case scenario, and what's the most likely scenario, and what would the worst-case be? Well, the worst-case isn't going to happen. I'd, I'd be stunned if the worst-case happened, and that would be the whole thing blows up and nothing happens, and both of them stalk back, and, and uh, Kim Jong-un starts throwing verbal bombs at the United States again, uh, which you notice he hasn't done now for, for weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my guess is that they'll come out of the meeting and there'll be more talk uh, but things will things will continue to improve. Well, it's you know it's it's amazing to know to see this actually going on, given what uh, Kim Jong Un had been saying until just really weeks ago. Right. The fact right. that he is now meeting in Singapore and apparently he's terrified he's going to get killed while he's there. Um, but I'm, I would think the security is as tight as it's ever been for anything. Um, right. But to have Mr. Trump meeting Mr. Uh, Un is not something we would have predicted even with with any sense of of optimism just weeks ago so here it is yeah well i mean like trump or not he is dominating the world stage i mean yes. i don't think there's any question of that i mean you look in the media in virtually any country in the world and it's trump 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 and so you know here here's the dictator of this small impoverished nowheresville country who's meeting on the world stage with the donald trump uh, so, if nothing else, he's got to feel like he's he's drawing more attention. His country's drawing more attention. His country's being taken more seriously, and Trump can definitely ma- wave a magic trade wand and really improve the conditions in North Korea in a heartbeat. Well, Fran, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much. It's not boring. It's not dull, and it's likely not going to get boring or dull anytime soon. No, that I have to say, this this guy. Uh, you know, not many of us thought he'd get elected president, and uh, he did, and things have, we have not had a dull day since. Well, I, I get the sense, certainly from you, that uh, the feeling in the U.S. is that, and the numbers, that there's no clear dissatisfaction. I mean, there are people who hate him, but there's no clear national dissatisfaction with Donald Trump when you compare him with what the numbers were for Barack Obama at, again, an equal point in their in their presidencies. Thank you, Fran. Good talking to you. Good talking to you, Roy. Frank Coombs, Managing Editor of Rasmussen Reports. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Pat Cadell is with us. He's an American public opinion pollster and a political film consultant who served as chief public opinion pollster and senior advisor for the campaigns of Democratic presidential candidates George McGovern and Jimmy Carter, 72 and 76. Pat Cadell became personal advisor to President Carter from 77 to 81 and served many other presidential campaigns. He was also a strategic media consultant to Apple Computers and Coca-Cola and served as a consultant on films including Apocalypse Now, Reds, Air Force One in the line of Fire and Breakout. And he was a writer, producer, and consultant for the Emmy Award-winning television series The West Wing. Um... Pat Cadell has worked as a political expert on major television networks and was a Fox News contributor. Mr. Cadell, thank you so much for making the time. I've watched you for years, and I'm a big fan of the fact that you're an honest thank guy. You. Thank you. Did you write that? I'm uh, to be. Did you write that uh, there's nothing like the smell of napalm first thing in the morning line? 
No, I wish I had. It's one of my favorites. So that was. I only uh, got uh, there for the. We were figuring out that we arrived in Jerry Rapsi and I arrived in the Philippines. They had already shot that. They we were working on the ending where they were blowing it up and um, and uh, and uh, how it was possible to market a movie about Vietnam. Uh, it took several more years before Coppola would ever be able to release it. But it, so, but it was an amazing experience being there. They had lots of interesting things. But I wish I had written that line. It's such a it's classic. Yeah, anybody who's heard that line will never forget it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Tell us about Jimmy Carter, please. There are many people who, when they hear about Jimmy Carter, they think one-term president, maybe the weakest president in our uh, in our contemporary history of watching the United States. Is that a, a, a misrepresentation a of Mr. Carter? Yeah, I believe absolutely. I think he was a very difficult presidency because of timing and because of the energy crisis and then we had the hostages and others. But I think he achieved more and, and you know, and actually the boom in energy that's going on now in America, uh, particularly as it relates to shale oil and whatever, was started under his energy program. Um, and uh, uh, and then that that was the origin, though. It's Stu Eisenstadt, who worked for President Carter, has just released, a, a, written a, a new book on the Carter administration, which is getting rave reviews. Many people have gone back and realized that the accomplishments were many in that administration, even in his short life. Um, and, of course, the one thing he did do uh, that uh, is most remembered is his 13 days at Camp David with Sadat, in Begin when he affected the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which lasts to this day, in which has really made war among Middle Eastern states um, unlike, you know, uh, unlikely to be able to be had with Egypt out. So um, it was, uh, you know, I think there was many, many significant accomplishments. Uh, but it was a difficult time in the hostage crisis in That's the right. economy. So, well, you know, you pay a price for those. Uh, I think his administration was, I look back and look at it as one of the most honest. I mean, the promotion of human rights around the world, which was unbelievably resisted by certain elements in the foreign policy community, I think was a huge breakthrough for the United States, uh, just that alone, and very popular with the American people. I want to ask you about the, uh, the rising tide of nationalism globally. And uh, and borders, uh, but first, may I ask you, what's it like to walk into the Oval Office if you're in the position of being a personal advisor to the President of the United States, which you were, and and so you're advising and you're privy to um, to things that are going on in the world. You talked about the hostage crisis in Iran. What is what's it like in that room when difficult decisions are being worked out, and the advisor speaks? Well, it's a little awesome. I mean, to go into the Oval Office ever. Uh, I've never gone in since and then or since that I haven't uh, felt the weight of the, I mean, the uh, the, the historical awe uh, of the Oval Office and the president and decision-making. Your job is, if you're advising a president, is give me your best advice. But uh, it was always uh, with great uh, uh, awe and respect to be in that office. Uh, it was intimidating in a way. Yeah, I can I can imagine it would be. Um, yes. What do you make of what's going on? One of the problems for uh, let me just say, sure. One of the problems for presidents, people go in there and they get intimidated and they don't go in and say what they mean, what they want us, what they are meaning to say, and which doesn't help them or serve the president very well. Now, how could you not think about who's been in that office, who's occupied that office, and who's made historical or historic decisions? in that office and now it's your turn yes and it's uh, it's awesome you know and you cannot there's no way you can avoid it you have the roosevelt room uh conference room which is right across sort of from the oval office and the cabinet all the cabinet room i mean it's just filled with historical memorabilia that tells you where you are and um and each president brings their own to it, and uh, you know, you walk in there, and you're sitting there at the uh, at the desk that uh, Great Britain, the Repul- from the Repulse, uh, the ship Repulse, I think, 
uh, gave to um, the United States that John Kennedy had actually reinstated as a, reinstalled as a presidential desk, you know, which is a magnificent uh, thing. So, anyway, ever all of it is. Yeah. Uh, you just you cannot help but think of the decisions and other things that have been decided. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Mr. Goodell, when you look at Donald Trump in the chair of the president, and now the, the, one of the big fights is, are we in a global world or a globalist's world, or are we in a world where nationalism and borders matter more? See, in Europe, um, it seems to be more and more that the nationalists are, or the populists, if you will, are gaining significant traction, whereas many of the politicians who are in elected office seem to wish to go for the global point of view. Where's this fight going? Yes. Where's this fight going? Well, this is a crisis politically around the world, certainly in the United States and, uh, uh, and, and in Europe right now, between those people who in the elite wish to be more globalist, even at the expense of the effect on their country. And the rising sense of, wait a minute, you know, we are not, the, we the people, middle class, others are not being taken care of, but their concerns aren't met, and they're treated as though they are, they are in, irrelevant. Look, I think about Europe, and we've seen this now in Italy, Slovenia, it's Hungary, everything, and Italy, it, Italy again, is really significant. Um, and we saw the Brexit, which is um, a resistance to the EU political um, union, which is, I've never understood. I thought the EU common market worked pretty well, but when they extended it to a political union, uh, which was essentially run by faceless bureaucrats in Brussels ordering people about, um, in doing, I suppose, whatever the Germans tell them to do, um, the uh, impact, people have gotten to really resent that, and that has been particularly heightened by the immigration, the refugee flow, uh, the unabated refugee flow into Europe, and all of the difficulties and, and, um, and uh, problems that has caused, even if the media is ordered not to cover it. Or if you do cover it, as we saw in Britain, you get to go to jail mm -hmm. uh, if you violate the. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable what is happening in the world um, and the assault on these countries, essentially of an invasion. This is to not to put too much on it, but it reflects to me as a um, is the what was stopped by um, you know the French and and by uh, various battles during the you know Middle Ages and later um, the. The, the encroachment of um, of uh, Muslim Muslim state and uh, Turkey and so forth into the Ottoman Empire uh, into Europe is being done by just sitting down and surrendering. I mean, just I mean, I, I don't believe you can avoid you can wipe out the nationalism of countries, particularly with histories as rich and long as they are in Europe. And uh, and uh, so we're seeing this counter movement everywhere, and it is it is truly a division between the elites who take care of themselves, make sure they do well, and are not affected by the policies that they institute and force on ordinary people in countries who feel they have become powerless, and they are and they are rising back. Now, when you, we look at Europe, we see countries in Eastern Europe, former states within the USSR, they're the ones who seem to be closing their borders or at least moving in that direction with more uh, determination than we might be seeing from other countries in, uh, in the European Union. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes, absolutely. The, the resistance in Eastern Europe because their freedom as countries is only recent seems to be stronger than it is in uh, other parts of the uh, EU. But look, we saw elements of this happening in Spain, some of it in France. We have really seen it in the rise in Germany uh, in, in the, uh, because of Merkel's policies, um, uh, Angela Merkel's policies and 
you know, uh, and her party, and she's going to leave now, I guess. Um, the um, but they are because they're they're relatively new countries and very um, uh, very passionate about holding on to their independence mm-hmm. and nationalism. And uh, and you know, Slovenia, I think, was shipping was you know had almost as many people who were refugees coming in a year as they had people in the country. That has got to be disruptive, and they really reacted to it. How do you see this ending? Hungary's. How, how do you see this ending? Uh, uh, not well, not well. Uh, I think that the populist tide we're seeing is going to continue until there. I think the it will end when um, the political, when the EU as a political union uh, dissolves, which I think may well be inevitable. Yeah. I do not understand why it came about in the first place. Uh, other than it was a dream of the Europeans, um, Europeanists uh, there, and um, but you know that all you have to do is read the EU Constitution, which I dare anyone to try to read. It's like 500 pages. I mean, the American Constitution is like 15 pages. Yeah. You know, and not realize what you have here is a bureaucracy, faceless, and 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 one that cannot be influenced, yeah. dictating every aspect of life. And look, for the Eastern Europeans, they've been through that. They're not going to do that. Well, and they've I been through it. A lot of others. They've been through it with the, when they were part of the USSR. They lived under right, massive bureaucracy. Right. right. When, and, when uh, you, I, that's why. And the others, I think, as I said, I think we're seeing it even in the West. Yeah, we have about two minutes left. When you talk about elites, I think about Bill Clinton. And I watch Clinton um, on, on TV with this book tour of his. And the man seems totally out of touch with reality. In the in the era of the Me Too movement, he is still babbling on about Monica Lewinsky as though he did nothing wrong. What's what's going on with him? Uh, he is so out of touch. He needs to go away. I think Democrats feel strongly. Uh, I think he and Hillary would they would best all wishing them to go away because it's always been about them and his this tour of his. Uh, on his book tour is as bad as what Hillary did on hers prior to her presidential campaign. He is just digging himself deeper and deeper, and then he gets another piece of advice, and, oh, I'm apologizing. You know, that is, it's time to put that aside. And, um, you know, he's been saying things, other things that uh, very disrupt people. But, you know, the example of because they are under investigation and they, and the and the, and and what was going on with the Clinton Foundation and his money, and look, the Clintons corrupted American politics in a way that the other elites joined in. That has been to the disservice and to the anger of the you know of the American people. There's just no doubt about it. Corruption is a big issue, even if no one in Washington will admit it. And Bill Clinton is just kind of reminiscent, just kind of re you know reignites that that feeling i uh I, in the 30 seconds we have left and it deserves more time i'm sure you're personally familiar with charles krauthammer i had the opportunity to yeah, interview uh, him and we're playing back parts of the interview over the weekend what are your what are your thoughts about mr krauthammer oh i i, I am such a fan of charles's and and i was honored to be a colleague of his at fox and i am so distressed when i saw the letter and i think it was so understated and eloquent the battle he's faced he was one of the smartest most interesting minds of my time and he actually started out working for walter mondale when i went during the carter mondale oh, really? so yeah. um yeah it's uh, uh but he is uh, uh he will be sorely missed and it's a terrible per- tragedy for all of us. it is it's pat- a great loss yeah pat i thank you so much for taking the time to talk to okay, us today my, my pleasure right all the very best. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Pat Cadell, uh, personal advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, active in more than 150 campaigns, many of them uh, presidential campaigns for Democrats. Hit up Apple Podcast or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. It is time for Beauties and the Beast. It is time for... Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ms. Swift. Mr. Green. How are you? 
Great, thanks. Wonderful. Linda Leatherdale is the former money editor of the Toronto Sun. She's vice president of Cambria, Canada now, just back from the United States. Yes, Ms. Right. Leatherdale. Hello, Roy. Hello, Linda. <laughs> and Michelle Simpson had the distinct pleasure of sitting beside the Prime Minister of Canada during question period as his fellow caucus member and globalist. I don't know what to say anymore. Not so sure about that. How are you? I was thrilled with the outcome of well, the election. Now, we have to ask you about this, but I want you both to hear what somebody emailed me. This is wonderful. So $605 million is what the uh, the G7 summit costs us, taxpayers, $605 million. The first one was like $21 million. This is $605 million. And over $300 million was spent on security. So Rick sends me an email. Have the G7 at Churchill. The polar bears will take care of security. <laughs> <laughs> also, the, the fair weather protesters will never go up there and freeze their buttons off. No, That's right. You know, you turn the corner and there's mama bear and baby bears. And we're not talking about being friendly. Anyway, what are your thoughts? So let's start with you, Michelle. You're the uh, you're the lifelong liberal. Your husband's a lifelong liberal. They both decided not to vote for the big, the wobbly red machine in, uh, in Ontario. How were you feeling on, uh, on Thursday night? Well, once we knew that the um, conservatives were entrenched, they were going to win, my husband and I slept like babies, like just had a good night's sleep. The fear was for us um, that the that Andrea Horvath would win and we'd have to leave the province <laughs> because we were concerned that, you know, she said, well, you know, those that do better are going to have to pay a little more. A little more. Yeah. But what's the definition of a little better, and what's the definition of a little more? Certainly, I would think that yours and hers are not the same. Well, exactly. I want. It's like when we've discussed middle class. No one defines that, and so we really were pleased with the outcome because we knew the other wasn't going to be an. an option. Yeah. So I was pleased. All right. Now, Linda, you heard the uh, the presentation by Ms. Horvath after she lost. I mean, it sounded like she'd just won the the, the super lottery. <laughs> sounded like she'd won the American super lottery, like $700 million. Come on, let's play that again. Here's, here's Andrea Horvath celebrating losing. Today, millions of people voted for change for the better. We have won more seats than we have held in a generation. I, I don't understand. I cannot understand. I, will not, I can't understand. Linda. Well, I guess she's celebrating. She's the official opposition now, as we know. And, uh, you know, after Bob Ray, I mean, they've been decimated and can't even get traction. So, I guess, in a way, she deserves a little bit of a celebration, but it was kind of over the top. Kind of? I would have thought, you know, if she had won, or let's say it was um, a PC minority government, perhaps then some more celebration. But i got to tell you, I am very happy with a Doug Ford majority. We can move on, and I yes. love what he's saying. We are open for business. And one of the hot topics when I was in Minnesota last week or this past week was the corporate tax cuts that Trump has ushered in. And, you know, you look at some of the numbers. No wonder our businesses are leaving this province. It is cheaper to do business south of the border or elsewhere and hydro and on and on. So all I can say is, Doug, the things that you say, please deliver for the little guy, the small business guy, for the guy who can't afford these gas prices, can't afford their hydro bill. But open us up for business. The lower the taxes, the more we spend. I've always believed in that, Roy. Now, I wasn't yeah. sure just where Catherine was leaning as oh, far as the election was concerned. In that regard. I wasn't uh, sure whether you were leaning liberal, 
NDP? <laughs> I wasn't sure. I know. It's, it's a challenge. Uh, to be fair, though, I haven't always voted conservative, but I certainly did this time around. And, you know, Michelle, what you said was interesting. I've heard that from quite a few people. I slept well, really. I, I, I've heard that exact same thing, which is intriguing. But the spin that both Horvath and Wynn, I mean, Wynn's saying, well, it's the right time to step down. If she had a wife, do you think she would have stepped down in a million years? <laughs> of course not. They're trying to put a, you know, lipstick on a pig, as the old saying goes. Yeah. And, um, and certainly, I think for Ontario, it's the best result in business, absolutely, for business. I was working hard on Christine Elliott's campaign personally. Oh, you know riding. what? I would, I would have loved to have uh, seen her. Yeah, she listen, she's a lovely lady and competent and, you know, experienced and all that good stuff. And we won in the landslide in Aurora Newmarket, which was where, you know, where that was. And um, it, it, uh, it, anyway, it was the right outcome. The NDP, I agree with both Michelle and I remember the Ray days. And I almost didn't blame Ray. I don't think he knew any better. And I don't think Horvath knows any better. And certainly a lot of the, you know, loose cannons they, they have. But, did, but have you heard how many people said, Oh, no one remembers the Ray days. Hello? Oh, yeah. Sorry. yeah well, I'm people do. And the ones that go out to vote did. Here's the question for you the, for the rest of the country to also get their teeth into. And we asked it earlier on the show. Do you think on Thursday the voters in Ontario, and it's interesting because Daryl Bricker was on with us, the president of Ipsos, and he said it wasn't the millennials who turned out. It was the parents of the millennials or turned out and voted in huge numbers. Do you think the, the voters of Ontario have sent a very clear message to two politicians particularly? One is Rachel Notley, the NDP Premier of Alberta, and the other is Justin Trudeau, the outgoing Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> Sorry. Do you, think that they, do you think the voters sent messages that the, the two of them, no matter what they say, no matter where they stick the lipstick, it's not going to work? Do you think they got Absolutely. the message? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.